That's a good reminder as we have some people who have come back from a mission trip and some who are on it that our friends in Kenya don't need Emmanuel Baptist Church. They need Christ. And sometimes it's, it can be easy to, uh, to forget that and to, to get those flipped. Thank you, Stephen, and the guys for leading us this morning. And for also last week, we appreciate you filling in and leading our church as we sing and as we worship together. In your bulletin, there's an outline for Psalm 73. So you can take that out and you can find Psalm 73 just to, right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 73. We did travel yesterday. It was a long day or two of travel. And uh, when we finally got back to Dallas, we had a plan that Hunter was going to fly to Dallas yesterday morning and drive us back. We would be tired, he would not be tired, and he would drive us back. We would bring one of our buses back. And uh, as soon as we landed in Dallas, I turned my phone on and I got a text message from Hunter that said, I'm still in Midland. The plane's broken. We haven't left yet. And I said, well, maybe you'll leave soon. And we texted back and forth. And finally, uh, we said, Hunter, just go home. So Hunter got to spend yesterday afternoon at the Midland Airport. I hope that was enjoyable. Did not fly to Dallas. And uh, we rented a car. And the Minios helped us to get some folks home. And we all made it. Um, Tyler and Brady are traveling back today. They stayed in Dallas. And uh, so thank you for your prayers as we traveled we got in the car last night. It was me and Margie Frazier and Chris and Sarah Ray and Josiah. And Chris Ray was sitting shotgun next to me. And he said, uh, he said hey, are you tired? And I said, well, yeah, I'm kind of tired, but I think I'm okay. And he said, well, if you need me, I think I can drive some. If, if you get tired, I think I can drive. And before we got to Weatherford, Texas, <laughs> Chris Ray was asleep on the middle console. He he started out like this up on his head, and then he kind of slid down further and further. But he's here this morning, and he's awake. You're going to make it through the whole sermon. Don't lean on your hand. You might start sliding. <laughs> Psalm 73. So we're talking about the book of Psalms. And knowing that I would be gone to Kenya and then coming back and preaching after traveling, I picked Psalm 73 intentionally for this Sunday. Um, I picked it because just personally, as I read through the book of Psalms, this is one that I come back to over and over and over and over again. And if you've read through the book of Psalms, you may have had that experience with certain chapters there's something in it that resonates with you, something in it that, that speaks to your life in a, a consistent way, in an ongoing way. And I definitely look at Psalm 73 as a psalm that has great application to my life, and I think probably to yours. I also look at Psalm 73, we're going to read it in a minute, and when you get to the end of the psalm, in my opinion, I don't want to say that. Psalm 73 is better than the rest of the Bible or, or more important than the rest of the Bible. I'm just telling you, the end of Psalm 73 to me is the most beautiful words written in the entire Bible. When I read them and I think about them and I meditate them, meditate on them, um, I, I don't think that they have equal. And so it's one that I read often and uh, one that hopefully even if I'm halfway asleep this morning, I can 
walk through with you. Before we talk about Psalm 73, I want you to know about the guy who wrote it, okay? We can study it on its own independently, but I think it helps to know about the guy that wrote it. And if you look above verse 1 in Psalm 73, it says a psalm of Asaph. Now, I'm willing to bet that if we went through and I said, tell me everything you know about Asaph, I bet you don't know much. Even if you've read the Old Testament multiple times, I bet you don't know much. And your mind might be thinking, stories about Asaph. What did this guy do? What happened? There's no stories about Asaph in the Old Testament. But there's a lot of verses where he's mentioned. And if you look up all of those verses and compile them together, you learn some interesting things about this guy. You learn that he was from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe in Israel. You remember there were 12 tribes. He came from Levi, and he was involved in leading worship at the tabernacle. So he lived in David's day. They didn't have the temple built yet. You know that that happened under Solomon. But they had the tabernacle, and they would gather together for corporate worship for different uh, festivals, feasts, weekly on the Sabbath. And part of Asaph's job was to lead worship at the tabernacle. You can read about that in Chronicles. Put the next slide up. He was a percussionist, so he was Kelly McKay, pretty much the same thing. Probably not exactly the same thing. He was probably a little bit taller than Kelly is. But he was a percussionist, and he preached. The Bible says that he prophesied under David. And it doesn't really explain what that means, but I think the idea is that uh, Asaph was most comfortable in the position of leading God's people in worship. That's what he's best remembered for. But he was also somebody who knew the scriptures and who, if you needed him to or, or if the occasion was right, he would stand and he would preach or he would teach or he would talk to people, maybe not in sermon form or in discourse form, but maybe just one-on-one. He would share the truth of God's word with people. Put the next slide up about Asaph. He left behind a family that continued to lead worship many years after he died. This is interesting, right? Asaph lived way at the beginning of Israel's history as a nation. And in the book of Nehemiah, they've gone through all the ups and the downs. They've been sent out into exile, and they're beginning to come back into the promised land. Hundreds of years have passed, and his family, Asaph's family, is still known as a family that leads worship in Israel, which I think is just a neat thing. I think it's a testimony to the legacy of faith that he left behind, that his great, 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 great grandkids were still following in his footsteps in the faith. Next. He's remembered as a man of faith and a man of obedience. That's a pretty good legacy to leave behind, right? If you talk about what do you want people to remember about you when you're gone, they, they talked about Asaph when he was gone, and they said this was a guy who really had faith. He trusted the Lord, and he didn't just say it verbally, but he lived it in his life. He obeyed God. Lastly, he wrote many psalms. You can see those there, Psalm 50 and then 73 to 83. And he was a key leader in Israel. We're not looking these verses up for the sake of time, but later today you should go look up Nehemiah 12, 46. It's one of the most interesting verses you'll you'll read about Asaph. And it's basically talking not directly about Asaph as a man, but it's just sort of a comment thrown in hundreds of years after Asaph was dead and buried. And the comment goes something like this. Do you remember the good old days of David and Asaph? 
You remember back, way back, when David was the king and Asaph was leading us. And those two names are grouped together. Now David, if I said, tell me a story about David, you could probably start rattling them off. You know David. We, we talk about him. He's a prominent figure. And then you have this sort of obscure guy named Asaph who gets lumped in together. And they don't just say, do you remember the good old days when David was king? But they say, do you remember when David and Asaph, those two guys were leading us? Just as an example, it'd sort of be like somebody in a hundred years saying, hey, oh, you football, do you remember the good old days of Bob Stoops and Corey Spear? <laughs> and somebody says, uh, Bob Stoops, yes. Corey Spear? I don't... I don't remember him. Or maybe it'd be like this, Dallas Cowboys. You remember the days of Romo and Hunter? You, back in the glory days, Tony, Romo, and Hunter. You, they say, yeah, Tony, Romo, I remember that guy. But Hunter? I don't, I don't remember him. And it's sort of like that. You read David and Asaph. We don't know a whole lot about his life. I can't tell you a whole lot of stories or, or great heroic tales like we can about King David. But we know that he was a man who loved the Lord. And he was faithful to lead people in worshiping God. He was faithful to teach God's word. He left behind a legacy of faith. I don't want to put Asaph on the pedestal as the hero, okay? God is always the hero in the Bible. Asaph is not the hero. But if I can just humanly say this, Asaph was a big deal. He was a key leader in Israel. Not the kind of person spiritually who thinks they're a big deal and everyone knows they're not. He really was a big deal. He's a key leader in ancient Israel. And, are you ready for this? He had doubts. Spiritually. He had doubts and struggles. One of the two key leaders, you remember in the days of David and Asaph, the glory days, the great days, those two great leaders, and here's one of them, and you read Psalm 73 and you realize this guy struggled in his faith. It just wasn't always easy. And I think it's one reason personally that I come back to Psalm 73. I, I can't speak to your experience as a Christian and I hope that this doesn't disappoint you or shock you to hear your pastor say this, but I have doubts. Sometimes I, I sit and I say, do we really believe this? I, I read a story in the Bible and I say, how, what am I supposed to do with that? How do I make sense of that? Or I watch the news at home and you, and you see the, the events around the world and you say, what? how do you fit all this together with the things that we say that we believe? So the thing about Asaph is he's looking at the Bible, and then he's looking at the world, and in just a moment of honest struggle in Psalm 73, he comes to the Lord and he says, I don't see how to make these two things fit together. I hear what you're saying, but I know what I'm seeing, and I just don't know how to bring it all together. And in Psalm 73, he's working that out in his life. And I think it's instructive for the things that I need to do and the things that you need to do. When you face doubts and spiritual struggles and difficulties in your Christian life, this is what you do. You do what Asaph did. You don't just try to stuff it down and pretend like, oh, I'm not supposed to think that. I'm not supposed to feel that way. You're honest about it, but you handle it in the right way. And so we're going to see how Asaph handled it 
in Psalm 73. So you follow along. We're going to read it. Psalm 73, verse 1. says, A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing that I desire. There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as... Sinners, all of us, we come to you with doubts and questions, all of us. We come to you with uncertainties, with hesitations. We're divided people. And our prayer this morning is that you would help us to work through those issues the way that Asaph models. And that our eyes would be fixed on you, that our hope would be found in you, our security and our comfort in you. Father, that we would be able to leave today 
and with integrity pray this prayer that there is nothing in the heavens and there is nothing on this earth that we want more than we want you. And we know that for that to happen, that you have to do a work in our life. And so that's what we ask for this morning. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. How do you deal with spiritual doubts, with questions? When you look at the Bible and you hear what the Bible says and you look at the world and you see what's going on or you hear what the world says and you don't see how to fit all of those things together, how it can all work out and be true and right and, and make sense in your mind, what do you do? You do what Asaph did and we're just going to walk through and I'm going to point out some of the things that he did in his life. Number one, you need to preach the truth to yourself. You must do this. If you want to come out on the other side of your questions and your doubts and you want to be able to say with Asaph, truly it is good for me to be near you. I trust in you. There's nothing on the earth or in the heavens I want more than you. You are my portion. I need nothing else. If you want to end up there, you have to start here. You preach the truth to yourself. And look at verse 1, Psalm 73, verse 1. Asaph is about to lay out his complaint or his concern or his question. But before he just jumps right in and says, God, I don't see how these rich people who keep getting away with sin are ever going to be held accountable. And all the righteous people like me seem to suffer. And I don't see how that fits together. Before he opens his mouth with that question, look what he says, Psalm 73, 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You understand, in the verses that follow, he's about to say, I'm not sure if I really believe that. I'm looking at my experience of life, and I'm not sure that that's really playing out. But before he brings his concern to God, he stops and he says, I know that it's true. I believe that it's true. Your word says that it's true. He's preaching, not to you or to me, but to himself. And he's saying, it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I'm struggling with. This thing is true. God is good to Israel. It is true, regardless of my experience. You got to preach to yourself. You understand that I get to preach to you 30, 40 minutes a week. And the rest of the week, you have other voices preaching to you. You have the devil. He preaches. And he says things like this. Crossing that boundary that God has set in your life, if you just cross it, you'll be so much happier. You'll be so much freer. You'll be so much more satisfied. And he preaches. I get 30 minutes. The rest of the week, he's preaching. The world is preaching at you, whether you want it to or not. The world is saying things to you constantly. In this country, you can't get away from it. It's on TV. It's on social media. It's everywhere. It's on the radio. And the world is saying things like, you need more stuff to be happy. You don't have enough. You're not safe. You're not secure. You need a little bit more. You need more. You want more. Watch advertising today. They're not selling products anymore in commercials on TV. 
They're selling desire. And they're saying to you, if you have this thing, it doesn't matter how functional it may be, it's just, it's going to make you feel better. And the world is preaching all the time. Satan is preaching to you. And here's the worst news. Your heart is preaching. The flesh is preaching to you all throughout the week. Questioning, doubting. So all week long you have those voices in your life. Your heart, which is wicked. The devil, who wants to destroy you. And the world, which is an enemy of God. And they're talking. And I get 30 minutes a week. And if you want to come out on the other side of your doubts and your questions like Asaph did, you're going to have to learn to preach to yourself. If you're totally dependent on me to be the only voice of truth in your life, can I just be honest with you? I can't do that. I'm not capable of doing that. Ron Hinesley can't do that. Chris Harrington or Corey Spear can't do that. Hunter Siegler can't do that for your young people. We can't. It, we're, not, we're not capable. You have to learn how to preach the truth to yourself. And Asaph does that right at the beginning. He's about to be honest with God, but he stops. Before I ask a question, let me just remind myself of one thing that I know is true. Truly, even though I'm struggling to believe it, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Secondly, you can't focus on the wicked. You can't focus on the world. Verse 3 is an honest confession where Asaph says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked at people who weren't following you, who weren't submitting to you, who weren't acknowledging you, and it looked like they had a pretty good life. And for a time, me, Asaph, this big worship leader in Israel, I wished that I had their life and not my life. I thought their life looked better, funner, more satisfying, more safe and secure. And I was envious of those people. Look what he says in verse 12. These are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. He's thinking about people that he knows. He's saying, look, God, you say that you're going you're gonna to judge the wicked, but I know a lot of wicked people and they seem to be doing just fine in life. They have a bigger house than me. They drive a nicer car than me. They wear nicer clothes than me. They send their kids to better schools than I do. What's the rub, God? I thought I was one of your faithful ones, and these wicked people, they just, they have all of it. And he's envious, and he's jealous of them. And the problem is, he's focused on them, not God. He's completely focused on other human beings. There's a story about Robert E. Lee. You may have heard of Robert E. Lee. He was a general in the Civil War. Before the war started, Abraham Lincoln actually asked Robert E. Lee if he would be a general for the Union Army. He knew that he was opposed to slavery, and he thought that he could recruit him, and he knew that he was highly skilled as a general, and Lee thought about it, and really wasn't the issue of slavery, but it was other issues involved. He decided that he was going to side with the Confederacy, and he was a brilliant general. And uh, the South had some amazing generals, and he was at the top of that list. Before he was a general in the Civil War, he fought in the Spanish-American War. 
and uh, he was a captain. And he tells the story when he was in the Spanish-American War. He says, I never trusted anybody to go out and scout the enemy. I, di- I just I didn't have confidence that they would go out and do what I wanted them to do. So I just did it myself. So he's out, the captain, on a scouting mission, and he sort of gets overtaken. He gets surprised by a group of Mexican soldiers whom he was fighting at the time. And he says, there was no way I could escape. The geography didn't permit it. And he said, all I could do was get under a dead tree. There's this dead tree, and I just, I crawled under this tree, and I got underneath it, and I just sort of hid. And he said, these Mexican soldiers come by, and he said, where do they choose to camp? Right by the tree. They set up camp right there by the tree, and they talk, and they cook, and they hang around, and he's just sitting under the tree. Some of the Mexican soldiers come over and sit on the dead tree that he's hiding under. The answer, or the problem, depending on your perspective, was right under their nose, And they weren't looking in the right place. Asaph is looking in the wrong place. If you have doubts and struggles and spiritual issues that you're wrestling with in your life, don't look at the world. Don't focus on the world. You've got to set your mind in a different place. And when Asaph is wrestling with these questions, his focus is on the wicked. And it's also on himself. So thirdly, don't focus on the wicked, but don't focus on yourself. Verse 13. I want you to understand verse 13, 14, and 15. Verse 13 is a shocking confession. He says, I've looked at the wicked, I've seen how easy they have it, and I've looked at how hard my life has been at times. Verse 13 All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, my faithfulness to you has been a waste. It's got me nothing. That's pretty honest with God, right? To come before God and to write a song and to say, can I tell you, God, what I'm thinking in my heart since you already know it? I'm thinking right now that everything I've done for you, my faithfulness towards you, my service for your people, it's been a waste. It has no value. Then look what he says in verse 15. If, 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 if I had said I will speak this or thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You understand, he's wrestling with this in his heart. And he's trying to work through it. But he says, I didn't say it out loud. I wrote it, and I'm confessing it, but I didn't say it out loud. Sometimes you hear people say things like, well, you can be totally, completely honest with God. You can say anything to God. He knows your heart anyways. He does know your heart. Chris Harrington preached about that a few weeks ago in Psalm 139. He knows the words that are going to come out of your mouth before you even form them. However, some things you don't need to say out loud to God. And he says, this is what I'm struggling with. This is how I'm feeling, but I'm not going to tell people these questions that I have. I'm not going to broadcast this, this thought that it's all been a waste. And if I had said that out loud, I would have betrayed your people. But he's focused on himself, on the waste that his life has been. And the problem is he's looking to himself for answers. 
He's looking inward for answers, right? Our society has perfected this, correct? Just look in your heart. Just follow your heart. Just do what feels natural to you. Just, if, if that's who you are, if that's how it is, just, just go with it. Just be true to yourself. Just express what you're feeling and live that out to the best of your ability. I just want you to, to be your true self. Follow your heart. It's Oprah. It's Dr. Phil. It's Dr. This guy and Dr. That guy and this person and that person. And it's just, it's trust your heart. And the Bible says, what about your heart? The book of Jeremiah. It's wicked. And it's deceitful above anything else in your life. The one thing that will lead you astray more than anything else is your own heart. You can't trust it. You can't even understand it. The depths of the the depravity in your own heart. You can't fathom it. Don't trust it. Don't focus on yourself when you're struggling with spiritual doubts. Positively, this may seem elementary, but it's important. Focus on God. Number four, you're not going to focus on the wicked. You're not going to focus on yourself, but you're going to keep your focus on God. Everything changes for Asaph in verse 16 and 17. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end, the end of the wicked. Then it made sense. Listen, Asaph is not saying I went into some magical building and all my spiritual doubts just went away. Like walking into this room is going to erase all the spiritual struggles and doubts that you may have. It doesn't work that way. What he's saying is, as the song leader in Israel, when I went to the tabernacle and the people of God gathered together for worship and we put our eyes where they're supposed to be on God, then it all makes sense. When I walk around during the week and I'm focused on myself and I'm focused on the wicked, that's when I'm in turmoil. But when I stop and I fix my eyes on my creator and my savior, then it all becomes clear. Listen, this is why you need to be in church every week. It's not just because I want you here. It's just not so we can have more people in the room. It's because every week you need to stop and you need to refocus. You need to recalibrate. You need to say, man, it's been a crazy week. I've had a lot of stuff happen this week. Surprises, highs, lows, good things, bad things, struggles, victories, all of it. And I need to stop and I need to refocus. God gives us the command to worship together once a week because he knows we need that. This is why in our new member class of our church, we tell people part of the expectation of being a member at Emmanuel is that you will participate in corporate worship. You will show up and be here. It's not just because we want to count more heads. It's because you need it. And Asaph is telling us and he's reminding us when you're dealing with all the questions and doubts that you have in your life, you just need to stop and you've got to refocus. And you're saying to yourself, well, can't I just do that at home? Can't I just download a sermon off iTunes? Can't I just read my devotion book or get the Bible out or crack open Psalm 73? You can, and you should throughout the week. But what Asaph is saying and what the New Testament echoes is that there's something special when God's people come together for the purpose of refocusing their attention on God. That's why when we gather together for worship, it shouldn't be about us or our tastes or our preferences. We shouldn't sing songs that are centered on us and how we're feeling 
or our experience in life. We sing to God, about God, because we want to focus on God. Asaph is saying you've got to have your focus fixed where it belongs. Number five, he says you need to remember the reality of judgment, something that he had forgotten. In the end, the wicked get exactly what they deserve. He talks about that in verse 18, 19, and 20. 20 is a scary verse. He says, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you will despise them as phantoms. When Asaph is focused on the wicked, he says, they're so prosperous, they're so safe, they're so secure, they enjoy all these great things. When his focus is on God, he says, they're like a, a ghost, they're like a mist, they're like a vapor, a phantom, they're not even a, a real thing. They're here and they're gone. Judgment will come. And he talks about that. He also models repentance. This is number six. You've got to repent of your lack of faith. Our day and age is very good at being genuine and being real and being honest. We talk about those words a lot. Let's just be genuine. Let's be real. Let's not pretend. And those are good things. As long as you follow up your genuine sin with repentance in your real sin with repentance, in your heartfelt sin with real repentance. And Asaph does that. Look what he says in verse 21 and 2. When, when my soul was embittered, when I was angry with God, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. Let me make it more clear. I was like a beast. I was less than human in my anger and my frustration with God, like a beast of the field who lacks understanding. That's what I was like when I tried to question God. It's kind of the conclusion Job came to when he tried to question God, right, at the end of the book. And he just says, I'm talking about stuff that I have no idea what I should be saying. I repent in dust and ashes. And that's what Asaph says. Who am I to question you? I was ignorant. I was brutish. I was like a beast. Lastly, number seven, how do you deal with these doubts and these struggles? You reevaluate your treasure. And this is the, the part of the psalm that I mentioned earlier, I think is, is my favorite. Look what he says in verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? Meaning, there's not a thing or a person in heaven that I want more than I want you. And there's nothing on the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I wonder if we can really say that this morning. What do you think? Don't answer out loud. Just think. Can you say it with all of your heart and mean it? That there is nothing and no one in heaven that you want more than God. And there's nothing or no one on this earth that you want more than God. Now, you know the right answer. The right answer is you're supposed to say, yes, that's true of me. But really, nothing up there or down here, no one up there or down here that compares to a knowledge of the true God. You know, I thought about that this week, and I think it's what Jesus is talking about 
In Matthew 13, you can look it up later, 1344, he says, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And a man found it, and he covered it up. And then in his joy, it's the most important part of the whole story, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field. He found something that was so much better than anything else here or there that he, he was willing to give it all up joyfully, not begrudgingly, joyfully to get it, to get that one treasure. And I think that's what Asaph is, has had his eyes open to as he comes through this process of repentance and worship and realignment. And he says, look, I was focused on the wicked. I was focused on their money. It's focused on their power and their prosperity. I don't want that more than I want you. There's nothing here or there, no one here or there that I want more than I want you. And Jesus is saying to you, there's a kingdom available to you. And when you see it for what it is, no one's going to have to twist your arm to enter it. When you see it for what it truly is, nobody's going to have to manipulate you into praying a prayer or raising your hand or getting baptized or walking down an aisle. Because when you see it for what it truly is, you will joyfully give up anything and anyone that stands in between you and that kingdom. And you need to understand and I need to understand that it's possible for us to do that. It's possible for us to do what Jesus is calling us to do because he's already done it for us. He gave up heaven to become poor. And the Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. For the joy. No one had to cajole him or or manipulate him into making this sacrifice. He did it willingly and gladly and joyfully. He's only asking you to do for him what he's already done for you. And that's to put him in his glory and his kingdom at the center of your life. Some of you this morning, you say, you know, I have never done that in my whole life. I've prayed prayers to invite Jesus into my heart. I've raised my hand at, at revivals or crusades or rallies or church services. I've, I've been through spiritual rituals and baptisms and things, but I've never put Jesus at the center of my life as the most important thing. And you need to do that today. I think a lot of you are in the position where you say, I've, I know that, I believe that, but then I leave Sunday morning church and I go back to quote unquote the real world and it's not so easy, pastor, and I know it's not. Asaph knows it's not, but he's telling you, this is what you need to do. You need to preach to yourself. You got to do that. You got to take your eyes off the wicked You've got to take your eyes off yourself. You've got to fix them on God. You've got to confess your sin and your doubt to God. And you've got to reevaluate your treasure. And you've got to do it today. And you've got to do it tomorrow. And Tuesday, you need to wake up and do it. And Wednesday, you're going to have to do it again. And Thursday, you're going to do it again. And Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And then Sunday, we're going to come and we're going to do it together again. All together. We're going to refocus our hearts and we're going to say, look, it's been a crazy week and it's had ups and downs and I've had some victories and some failures and I need to refocus. I need to recalibrate on what is the most important treasure 
in my life. And so we're going to do that this morning. You pray with me. Father, you are a great God. You are the one true God. You are worthy of all of our praise. Father, you have made salvation a reality in our lives for those of us who have trusted in Christ. Not because of any good thing that we have done for you, but just because you are a great God, a gracious God. And Father, we pray this morning that you would give us hearts that are united in love for Jesus. And that with integrity, we would be able to say with Asaph that there is nothing on the earth and there is nothing in heaven that we want more than we want to know you and to glorify you and to enjoy you. Father, we're grateful for your word that is real and it applies to our life. We look at this song that's thousands of years old and it describes us perfectly. And so we pray that you would press it home into our lives, help us to understand it, and help us to do these things as we leave this morning. Father, be honored as we sing together and as we focus on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.